Welcome to the Gonzo Movie Reviews. The Pixar Specials. This is the Toy Story Trilogy. It moves! It is coming! It is, it is coming! <laughs> Part 2. Regarding Toy Story 2, this was not the first Disney sequel, but it was the first that made it into theatres. When Aladdin 2, The Return of Jafar, came out in 1994, it kick-started a series of, some might say, mismanaged, and some might say just plain crappy, straight-to-video follow-ups to all of the absolutely quality classics of the 90s, including The Little Mermaid 2 and a prequel, two Beauty and the Beast midquels, by which I mean The Enchanted Christmas and Belle's Magical World took place during the original film. It's a stupid word up there with quadrilogy. Aladdin 3, Lion King 2, <laughs> and Lion King 3, or 1.5, depending on which region you're in. That one's okay. I, I, I like Lion King 2 and 3. Uh, Pocahontas 2, Hunchback 2, Mulan 2, Tarzan 2, Kronk's New Groove, Lilo and Stitch 2, Brother Bear 2, Atlantis 2. Even the Golden Age Disney classics weren't above sequeling, with Lady and the Tramp 2, 101 Dalmatians 2, Bambi 2, The Fox and the Hound 2, and Cinderella's 2 and 3. Most of the above were poorly scripted and shoddily animated and rushed to video, most of the above, with none of the Disney love and attention. My apologies to the folks who must have worked hard with the tools they had, but everybody appears to be in agreement that this was a very poor choice on the part of the studio, and ushered a sense of cheap production line in, endlessly regurgitating facsimiles of their past glories. All of them seemed aimed at children that would not be discerning and simply nag their parents for more adventures from their heroes. It was one of the contributory factors to the death of Disney's 2D animation for many years until its triumphant return with The Princess and the Frog. And why I'm telling you this is the need for context for what Toy Story 2 might have been under different creative processes. The original plan was for a straight-to-video sequel lasting 60 minutes, but it became apparent that this was something very special. Pixar had proved themselves twice with Toy Story and 1998's A Bug's Life, but they had yet to show the world what they could achieve with a deeper, more expanded story – this film changed that. So what do you know about the uh, production? Uh, troubled production does not begin to describe what happened the, uh, behind the scenes of Toy Story 2. Yeah. Okay, so it's Toy Story 1, huge success, uh, puts Pixar on the map. They're well into working on A Bug's Life. Disney decides that they would like for Pixar to make an hour-long direct-to-video sequel to Toy Story. And Pixar agrees and uh, turns over... It turns this project over to a secondary team while the main production crew focuses on wrapping up A Bug's Life. So, A Bug's Life is finished. John Lasseter prepares for a much-needed vacation after directing two films back-to-back. Unfortunately, Toy Story 2 was not turning out especially well at this point, and the main production crew hadn't really been paying much attention to it. They were pretty focused on their <laughs> current work with, the, with their second film. But, uh, when they finally got around to watching the in-progress reels for Toy Story 2, they found that the story was just not working, and unfortunately the film was already past the story phase well into production. And, uh, well, John and the rest of Pixar's creative staff agreed that they just could not release this movie in its current state. They, ne- they needed to go back and basically start over from scratch. So they met up with Disney to tell them, so this we cannot release this as is, we have to start over. Disney... Disney's response was, guys, you literally do not have time. You have nine months until releasing this thing. 
like it's good enough. You, there's no way you can go back now. It's too late. And Pixar respectfully disagreed and buckled down for basically the nine hardest months it ever had. John agreed to postpone his break and come back and direct the film, uh, saying that he couldn't ask everybody else at the company to commit to something that he wouldn't commit to himself. Mm. So they rewrote the entire film from scratch over a weekend. They threw out almost all of the previously completed work and restarted production over. And in the end, they managed to turn in the completed film on time. And about one third of the studio developed repetitive strain injuries from the rush production. And many of them needed time to recuperate afterwards. It, it was pretty much a defining moment or maybe the defining moment for the studio where Pixar showed its dedication to quality. Uh, there's a, one of my favorite John Lasseter quotes is that quality is a great business plan. And uh, I think this kind of showed that the company was willing to stick to that and was re- willing to work to stick to that very hard. And it's still a point of pride for just about everybody in the studio. See, that's one of the things that I like mo- most about Pixar. They, they, the reason they have such a high batting average, as I said last week, which is this, at the moment, to date, 100% of quality films, even the films that some people consider to be the weaker of the Pixar movies are still just that. They're still extremely high-quality movies, but they've got such tight competition to compete with. But the refusal to put out anything that doesn't meet their standards, it's refusal to go for the path of least resistance. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why what most of us will be able to see a trailer for a Pixar film now and not really be completely sold on the idea. We're not really know what Pixar's planning to do with this. Mm. I mean, a guy with balloons on his house going to stuff. All right, whatever. It's, I'll, I'll see it. Yeah. But the point is, we all say, still say, we'll still see it. And when we go there, we're always glad we did. So, and I think that's it's that reputation Pixar wants to basically defend and protect. At this point, things were a little bit tense between Steve Jobs and Michael Eisner, and was it was leading to a, a rather uncomfortable time between Pixar and Disney, which thankfully was resolved later on when new management was instated and a new direction was given to the House of Mouse. And do you know what the scary part of that is? Do you know who the major shareholder in Disney is now? Apple. Steve Jobs is the major shareholder in Disney now. Wasn't far off with Apple. <laughs> it's a, it's just kind of a scary thought, and also why is that you, scary? Uh, watch that they could some, eat rule the world if they wanted to. <laughs> well, let, let's just say watch some of um, I think there is references to what look like Apple products in certain Pixar stories now. Eve in Wally looks like an extremely evolved iPod. I'm telling you what, I'm, I'm sure that is actually Steve Jobs' ultimate goal is to create Eve, which I'm not going to. I'll be behind him. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but isn't it uh, when Wally opens his uh, sun catcher, his uh, his solar panels, he goes doom, that kind of yeah, Apple Apple to the sound, yeah. yeah. So there you go. <laughs> but you know, that Pixar have had a very, very close relationship with Apple since day one. And they've also had a very close relationship with Disney. So it's not, that doesn't surprise me. Well, Steve Jobs is one of the few people that actually did invest money into Pixar. Yeah. So yeah, Steve Jobs is a big reason why Pixar exists as it is today. So I, I want to make it clear. I'm not criticizing Steve Jobs. <laughs> that just goes to show what kind of man he is, how good a vision that man has. Yeah.
Okay, so let's talk about Buzz's space adventure and Woody's dream. The film starts off with two very effective scenes that were originally intended in some form for the original Toy Story. The 1995 predecessor was supposed to start with an adventure for Buzz that turned out to be a Saturday morning cartoon. In this, it's a video game, which I have to say seems graphically impressive for the Super Nintendo that Rex is playing it on, especially considering the side-scrolling platformers that most licensed games in the 16-bit era ended up as. Uh, a small note on this, the canyon that Buzz flies through. Did that look familiar to you, gentlemen? Yes, it did. Where did I see that from before? Uh, Dan? I believe I know what it's from, but I will let you reveal. It's a bug's life. It's the uh, dried-up riverbed uh, from A Bug's Life. They've just uh, turned out all the lights, and they made the rocks float, which started off as a mistake, but it looked so cool that they kept it in. Nice. (laughs) Then when Woody's arm rips, he gets a dream sequence that becomes his primary motivation for the movie, a dreadful fear of obsolescence and abandonment. It's never gone into, but if you think about it, consignment to the garbage dump is worse than death for a toy. They don't die. Woody would be facing an endless existence of filth and depression, crammed in with all the other junk, wandering forever, far, far away from the child he loves, who so carelessly discarded him. It's a notion of hell most of us can all relate to, no matter our belief system. This is, of course, masterfully and terrifyingly realised in Toy Story 3, but more on that next week. Another little note, since all of his fear is based on the damaging of his arm, all the discarded toy parts in the trash can he's thrown into are arms from other toys in the film. I also say that the video game that we see Buzz in, the end moment of that is such a huh moment. <laughs> what? Wait, hang on. Because if you, if you don't remember, Buzz dies. And it's like, what? So right away, Pixar take everything you know about toys and place a cap on it, an asterisk that states that this is finite. This won't last forever. Already the toys are closer to us now than we've ever been, and Woody is all the more relatable for it. Buster the Puppy was the first furry character for Pixar, a test that eventually led to... Monsters, Inc.? Yeah, the shaggy blue form of James P. Sullivan and various other hairy monsters in Monsters, Inc. Uh, When Ham flicks through the channel super fast on the TV, most of the shows are actually... The Pixar shorts. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I I didn't spot all of them because they were going so fast, but I did see definitely Tin Toy, Red Stream, and Knick Knack. Wheezy was played by Pixar head of story Joe Raft. He also played Lenny, the walking binoculars, and Heimlich, the caterpillar from A Bug's Life, all of whom appear in this movie. So that was the biggest movie for Joe Raff fans. And several other roles in every Pixar film up to 2005's Cars. That year, Joe very sadly died in a car crash. We'll talk about him more deeply during the Cars episode, but it's important to say how much he was loved within Pixar and valued, and how incredibly talented he was at realising a story on screen and personifying his characters. Absolutely. You'll still hear people talking to him or telling old stories about him around the studio. So it's very lovingly remembered. There's a fantastic extra on the, I think it's the Toy Story 1 Blu-ray, where they uh, they, they talk about him retrospectively. It's it's so joyful. I, yeah, I'll talk about that on the Cars episode. Um, after only a few seconds of Woody meeting Wheezy, this kind of pathetic but lovable penguin, you can fully understand why the cowboy would want to protect and save him. He represents resignation to the fate of being disposable that Woody can't bear, hence his no-toy-left-behind ethic, which has actually been there since his very first moments in Toy Story. I don't want any toys left behind. While a yard sale doesn't represent the baleful portent of doom that a garbage sack would, it does mean separation from a group that care about you and a child that loves you, and an uncertain future at the hands of possibly fickle strangers. 
and this yard sale behind Andy's back where Mrs. Davis gets shot of his toys that in her eyes he no longer needs or uses is something most of us can relate to. Many a Star Wars figure or Barbie has been whisked away by a thief in the night masquerading as a parent and sold for pennies amidst endless jumble. Heartbreaking but true. That happened to you guys? Yeah. Yep. Which casualties of war would you like to list? I'd like to list uh, most of the real Ghostbusters action figures. Oh, I was that thinking I had. my Ghostbusters as well. Heartbra- most heartbreakingly of all, my Ecto One. Oh, you know what? My parents bought an Ecto One for me in a jumble sale. Might have been yours. <laughs> Sandals. Cir- circle of life. <laughs> and can I also admit to the? And this is the really bad one. I was a kid. Barbie. But my um, no. My proton pack. I had the proton pack. I had a proton pack. Why would you not want to admit to that? <laughs> and I also had the... Was, um, the other one was called? The pop gun? You know, we... Oh, the, it was like a Nerf gun, wasn't it? Yes. The, the Ecto Popper or something. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have that. In case but, anyone hasn't worked out, huge Ghostbusters fan. Daniel, <laughs> did you like Ghostbusters back when you were like three? No, I, well, I hadn't... I didn't get to see Ghostbusters until much uh, later on, but... First movie I saw in the cinema. No, hang on. First was uh, View to a Kill. Then I saw Ghostbusters. Scared the crap out of me. I lost a Super Nintendo to, I suspect, a garage sale once. Oh! Ouch! I know. Ooh! That hurt. Ah, you don't need this. It's not like you're going to be doing lectures on this stuff. (laughs) Oh, well. The yard sale is a prime location for the many artifacts that Pixar cunningly reused in this film. On a tight budget and ridiculously short deadline, they filled the world with detail that recurs throughout rather than waste precious time expertly crafting clutter most people wouldn't pay attention to. It's actually pretty video gamey if you think about it. Recurring appearances include a yellow marker pen. Uh, those are in Andy's room to begin with. And then they're uh, rattling around inside Al's bag when Woody's in there in the boot. Uh, sorry, the trunk. Al's apartment has a couple of them there, and if you look around in Al's office... Oh, actually, now that I think about it, Cheetos, which were... Or cheese puffs, or Watsits, if you're in the UK. They're all over Al's floor, obviously, when he's eating them, but his office is also strewn with them. (laughs) And uh, yo-yos on Andy's shelf. Uh, He's he's got one when he's right next to Wheezy. There's also a penny in there, which ends up, uh, I think... uh, There's like a money bank or something in the collection of Woody paraphernalia. You have a sharp eye. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so the yo-yo's on Andy's shelf, but it's on its side, so you can't see what's on it. Then, obviously, there's the Woody yo-yo uh, in the uh, in Al's collection. Then in Al's toy barn, there's a yo-yo with a swirl on it. And Mr. Potato Head gets a yo-yo shoved in his butt by Mrs. Potato Head at the end, shortly before the Play-Doh. A can of lighter fluid that P.T. Flea used for flaming death in A Bug's Life. <laughs> And Andy's Candyland game is under Emily's bed, along with the Jessie lunchbox. And I think the um, her lamp is made of a cowboy boot, which would be fairly easy to remodel from uh, Woody or Jessie, and uh, a sombrero type thing. Definitely. So yeah, it's, it, they, they were just, it's repurposing, which is something I'm very familiar with myself. How is Woody so valuable? This one's hard because there are many variables and things that we have to take for granted. Uh, Woody's Roundup is a very similar program to the real-life Howdy Doody time. Did you ever catch that? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's very familiar. Never caught it. I I got it from uh, the beginning of Back to the Future 3 and uh, Little Trip of Horrors. It's referenced. But uh, I had to look it up, and my goodness, is it very, very similar to Woody's Roundup. Oh, yeah. Even if you haven't seen it, it's just – maybe it's just an American thing or not. Mm. I I don't know. But uh, it feels very familiar and 
old America. It's very sort of oldie timey. Everyone was cowboy mad in the earliest part of the fifties, and that right. that transition to being space mad is first off, it's perfectly mirroring uh, Toy Story one, where it's, so Woody says, "I know how it feels when he gets usurped by a spaceman." Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just that period in history when everyone went from looking back to the past when everything was all right, and then suddenly looking to, to the future and being all sort of space obsessed, and so it, it, it's such a gear shift. Um, actually, a, a word on Woody's Roundup. Most people, when they watch that, just think it's a puppet show that's been filmed, don't they? But that was actually they, they just remodeled Woody to make him more of a, a ventriloquist dummy with the uh, with the face. And remember last week we mentioned yeah. that he was going to be a ventriloquist dummy before. This is what he would have looked like. Scary. But yeah, that's yeah. that's all real. That's, that's that's all real. None of that is filmed. It's all uh, it's modeled in house, and, and they did a cracking job of it because it's so convincing. They're just very well, exceptionally well animated. Yeah. And it's got just that, that, that right sense of, of kind of goofy with the, 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 the music there, but it's, it's also kind of, huh, if that is a descriptor. It, it's kind of warm and fuzzy. Absolutely. Very familiar, nostalgia, it's a, yeah. old. It's a place where, as a child, you would have liked to spend time. Oh, yeah. So Woody's Roundup is a very similar program to the real-life Howdy Doody time, which ran from 1947 to 1960. In fact, check out eBay for some very familiarly styled lunchboxes, comics, yo-yos, and indeed dolls. Now, those dolls aren't going for a stupendous amount on eBay for two reasons. One, a 13-year runtime for Howdy Doody meant thousands of toys were put out there. Two, the very existence of eBay makes collecting a lot easier than it used to be. Vintage Star Wars toys now often go for less than short-packaged modern ones, unless they're mint or graded by the action Figure Association or AFA purely because whichever one you want is now but a search engine and a buy it now away this film is set in August 1996 when eBay was less than a year old and the internet was relatively new this may also account for a drop in Woody's value in the 2004 set Toy Story 3 so Andy doesn't have to think so hard about selling him if it's now only a few hundred bucks but if Woody's roundup ran for only two years from 1955 to 1957 when the Sputnik probe launched and everyone became obsessed with the space race and the toys were only released during its second year in a relatively short run then they would have become rare quickly big toy collectors will tell you accurately that it's never Luke Skywalker that fetches the most in a toy line it's the vinyl caped Jawa that was replaced with a cloth cape variant after the first run or the blue snaggletooth that was way too tall because the photo he was modelled off stopped at the knees it's the defects and the mistakes that make a high price collectible that or being short packaged or a chase figure like Marvel Legends Deadpool which I wish I'd never sold but in this case it was the toys in the 50s when they didn't really know what they were doing so while Jessie might have been bought for girls who would take care of her more and Stinky Pete proved less than popular and sat on shelves, Woody, the he-man of the group, would have been given to boys who, over the next 30 years, loved him literally to pieces. Al, it would appear, despite his slobby behaviour, is something of a perfectionist, so in 1996, we're looking at a world where all of the Woody's Roundup paraphernalia could have been carefully collected over the years, including Jesse, Bullseye, and the MISB Stinky Pete. But due to the lack of any imperfect or damaged Woody in the collection, we can only conclude that Al never found one that was still in great condition until now. I feel a little bit silly questioning the timeline of a Toy Story movie, but here it goes. It does all beg the question... How did Woody stay in such good condition for so long, and where was he? Because he never seems to bring it up. He, de- he doesn't have the, tra- the storage trauma that Jesse has. He's in really good condition for being a very old toy, probably a hand-me-down given to Andy. Andy plays 
pretty, I mean, it's not playing like Sid does, but he still plays exuberantly and excitedly <laughs> with him. It, you do kind of wonder, like, how did, has Woody held up this long, and where was he for a long, a lot of that time? Funny you should ask that. When Woody comes face-to-face with the Roundup collectibles and the graphical representation of who he is, it's the reverse of Buzz's revelation in the original. Woody realizes he's more than a toy, more than just the head of Andy's playthings. He has a history and importance and value. It's a revelation that would be very hard to replicate for a human, something along the lines of finding out that something you did years ago and forgot about improved thousands of lives. It's never made clear why he doesn't remember, but I would hypothesize that he was purchased on his own and played with lightly by an older brother or sister of either Andy's father or mother. This uncle or aunt may have then left Woody in a suitcase in the attic, accidentally, where he would have lain perfectly preserved and waiting to be played with again, only to be rediscovered three decades later in 1990, when Andy was three. This long, hence he was his favourite toy since kindergarten. This long wait would have accounted for the immensely strong attachment to this new kid and his jealous behaviour in the original Toy Story. It's possible, now, after five or six years, that Woody no longer even remembers his time in the attic, but nurses a desperation not to let his happy situation change again. He cares for all the other toys and wants Andy to keep playing and not move on from any of them, because at the end of that chain where childish things are put away is where he sits. This makes his eventual decision all the more poignant. came about when John Lasseter bought his kids into work and they were overjoyed to find he had toys in his office. They were rare and valuable and clearly bought in from home for their protection. And I understand all that because I have a whole office full of stuff Lara can't touch. (laughs) When the kids made to play with them, John was left desperate to separate his treasures from his other treasures, lest one wreck the other. This ridiculous notion that some toys shouldn't be played with by children started cogs moving at Pixar. Al represents that side of John and all the other more serious adult collectors who hide their toys from other kids and thus transforming them from one thing to another. As a toy, Woody is a wellspring of fun for Andy or any other child with a shred of imagination and love of cowboys. To many collectors, he would be a reminder of happier, carefree times when they were young and did not carry with them the cares and emotional baggage that growing up brings. And to others, it'd simply be a number on a stat sheet to be bought low and sold high, like so much ham. I kind of have a, a mix of the two. I, uh, I've got, you know, my toys that I keep loose that are fun for playing with and stick on the shelf and posing. And I've got my uh, mint in box ones, which I also stick on the shelf and, and admire and look at and love. But uh, I don't know. I'd, would I take my bender out? <laughs> Last time I took my bender out, the cat bit the end off. And I had to get, had to get rid of it. What? <laughs> Seriously? Is this on purpose? What? <laughs> <laughs> Woody's horse. He's a smart 
beat the old prospector. And Woody, the man himself, of course it's time for Woody's roundup. He's the very best. He's the rootin'est, tootin'est cowboy in the wild, wild west. We get another fabulous performance from Jim Varney as Slinky the Dog in this one. You may remember him from such films as Ernest Saves Christmas and Ernest Goes to Camp. Uh, while he didn't have the high-profile career of Tom Hanks or Tim Allen, he imbues Slinky Dog with warmth and loyalty. He's always the last one to leave Woody behind, looking sorrowfully back at him each time. And you get the distinct impression that they're the best and oldest of friends, just from his mannerisms and unfailing trust in the sheriff. Jim died suddenly of cancer one day before Toy Story 2 was released in the UK. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Okay. But no, I like Slinky. That is, he's again. It's like Mr. Potato Head and I can't remember the name of the piggy bank, but they're Hell. not. The main, but they are. They're not the main characters, but there's still so much to them. There's a yeah. lot of character in them. I was thinking today, could you do a Toy Story? I mean, if if Toy Story hadn't had Woody and Buzz, would the other toys be able to carry a film? I actually think they're they're better than most. Well, definitely better than most background characters in the average uh, animated film. Yeah, there's a lot of depth to them. A lot. Of, they're very well written and deep characters. Yeah. And they're very snappy and fun as well. That Ham specifically has always got the driest delivery. He's great. It's impossible not to love Rex unless you just are playing by annoyed by Wallace Shawn. In equal parts annoying and lovable. I think Rex might have one of my favorite quotes from the movie now. Is mm. that I want to try to use in real life if I can. Just, you'd think with all of my video game experience I'd feel more prepared. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the point I was going to make actually. We, we should feel very close to Rex's heart on this one. He seems to regard the entire adventure as a video game, possibly to distance himself from uh, from the danger that he's facing. But uh, yeah, he, he starts uh, thinking in terms of a video game and it actually does sort of help their survival at times as well. It's more than that. He's also, he really is a gamer. Because when mm. he finds the uh, guidebook to the, the Buzz Lightyear game yeah. and starts moaning about how the heck you've got to buy the book to finish the game. Yes. <laughs> We've all said that when we bought guidebooks. Specifically for Final Fantasy, if you don't have it explained to you in words of one syllable in the guide, you can't get into the fighting system of, say, Final Fantasy VIII. Yep. Let's discuss the Roundup Gang. So what do you think of Joan Cusack and Kelsey Grammer? Kelsey Grammer turns up and starts off... Uh, he doesn't do it all the way through, but the first time you hear him, I hear Sideshow Bob. Sideshow Bob, yes. <laughs> In fact, yeah, I, my, my daughter was watching The Simpsons yesterday, and she was watching the one with uh, Sideshow Bob and Sideshow Mel, um, brother from another series, <laughs> and she Frasier. was confused as hell, because she's got Stinky Pete on one side and Slim in uh, A Bug's Life. So I was going, yeah, Stinky Pete, and she... Ugh. Turn me around, bullseye. That's pretty much the only time it sounds like Sideshow Bob, but that, that, just that one just so sad, just oh, makes you think. When he's getting angry, spending a lifetime on a dime store shelf, he's exactly like Sideshow Bob when he's, I've saved children's lives! <laughs> and John Cusack, as, uh, as Jesse, starts off, she, she pe- plays it just right so that you just think Jesse's insane. She's, mm. she's screaming and yodeling and going, the prospector, he'll want to meet you. And, um, and you, you like Woody feel quite scared. And then when she starts moving towards him with the prospector being nudged along by Bullseye, you're like, oh my God, these toys are crazed. And of course, <laughs> you, you realize that there's a softness to her and a desperation for, for something other than just being put back into storage. And Woody represents her best chance of escape. I have to admit, I think Jessie is my favourite character. I don't know why, she just is. There's something very enjoyable and innocent to her. Mm. 
Yeah, no, yeah, innocent and a little bit mad is basically <laughs> Jessie. It's yeah, she's she's childlike and she's stubborn, but at the same time she's she's very very sweet natured as well. I mean, Bullseye is fantastic as well in this movie. Uh, well, any time you, you see him in the Toy Story movies, because he is that old school silent movie character. Yeah, yeah. he's Pluto. Yes, but not angry. That's definitely. Again, it's, it's there's a bit where uh, him and Slinky face off, and they could have made more about the fact that effectively he's a dog versus a, a horse that thinks he's a dog. <laughs> but again, uh, he's as uh, is, is innocent as it gets, which uh, we'll probably talk about in Toy Story Three. But uh, when when he follows after Woody when he's about to leave daycare, and Woody has to tell him to go back, it's heartbreaking. All of the the Roundup Gang feel like a missing piece of the puzzle. Like this stuff was all here beforehand. And, and then suddenly it's, it's revealed. It's like the curtain gets pulled back. And it makes so much sense. It's like the revelation of Emperor Zerg and, and what he's like in this. It just fits perfectly with the Buzz Lightyear story. Yeah, well, of course that's what Emperor Zerg's like. It, just, yeah. it, makes, it makes perfect sense. Darth Vader in a long skirt. Obviously. With an ion cannon, which uh, Rex was really afraid of, even though he doesn't have any mechanical moving parts. <laughs> Deluded Buzz as well. Once Buzz realizes he's a toy at the end of the first film, he completes his arc and begins a new one as a faithful companion to Woody and the clear leader of the other toys in the cowboy's absence. However, he's not quite as dynamic and amusing a character now that he's mature and accepting of his role. So in a masterstroke, Pixar bring back deluded Buzz in the shape of the display model, even more crazed and obsessed with mission protocol than Buzz A was in the first Toy Story. Buzz B has some of the funniest moments in this film, convinced of his miraculous abilities and never having to go through the awakening of Buzz A. He provides the -the over-the-top theatrics that we loved about him the first time round, and even stages his own mini Star Wars saga. A feat later accomplished as well by Spanish Buzz. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, they they bring back um, just a blank Buzz, but he's just mean. But uh, Spanish Buzz is much more theatrical. And uh, I'm going to check, because we'll need to know for next week, but what happens if you're watching that film in Spanish? Uh, Because he can't be French Buzz. Because he's doing flamenco and stuff. (laughs) Spanish people would be like, yes, what is different? (laughs) Oh, maybe... I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, well, we'll see, shall we? That's that's a good question. We'll find out. Pixar were tight for time, but the notion of Al mending Woody's arm with his clumsy sausage fingers didn't fit the character they'd set up. They needed a new role, but had no time or budget to make a new character model. The solution was simple. In the same way that they repurposed that yo-yo time and again, they took an existing character model from one of their previous works, the animated short that screened before A Bug's Life, Jerry's Game. In this short, he's an old man who plays chess with himself. It would take longer to explain than for you guys to just search for it on YouTube if you haven't seen it, but it's brilliant. In Toy Story 2, Jerry returns as the toy repairman, and if you look very closely, you will spot chess pieces in his toolbox. I really like this sequence. I'm not sure why. It's 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 because someone's giving Woody attention and real kind of you know it's not so much love because it's very professionally done, but you you like seeing good stuff happening to Woody and and, and right, you like seeing him all polished up and looking yeah. great and it, yeah and, and just this meticulousness about it. Clearly, Jerry is a master of his craft, and I, I really uh, admire that. And it's kind of mirrored in Pixar themselves. That's great orchestral touches by uh, Randy Newman yeah. as well. That helps. 
Okay. Uh, actually, speaking of music, uh, this is the bit that splits audiences down the middle. The song When She Loved Me, sung by Sarah McLaughlin, makes some people cry and others snort into their popcorn. By way of explaining the latter, I'm going to explain why I am always the former. Based on my experiences prior to my first screening. Now, this is kind of personal, so those who are just here for Toy Story may want to spin on for a few minutes. Toy Story 2 was released in November 99 in the USA, around the time that I just started college. I moved away from my family and I'd just fallen in love with two things. Uh, one was the internet, and very well that relationship has gone. And the other was a girl I met through the internet. Uh, she lived in Texas. And from September to Christmas, we conducted one of those hyper-passionate long-distance romances. You know, 10,000 emails and phone calls at 3 a.m. In early January, I scraped the funds together to fly out and see her, and we spent a blissful week together, followed by a tearful goodbye. And on the way home, I decided to marry her. We started making plans for her to move to England, and then shortly thereafter, she got cold feet and told me she didn't want to be with me. This tore my heart to shreds. Uh, from my 19-year-old perspective, this was the first person to become heavily romantically involved with me, only to quit when reality set in. I spent the first few weeks of February crying my heart out, and the next few months in a very dark state of mind. Fortunately, about Easter time, I met Sharon. And that kind of turned out all right. Yeah. Toy Story 2 was released in the UK on February 11th, just in time for my most miserable, depressed, maudlin, self-pitying phase. And while I sat in the cinema, Jesse's story of an incredibly close relationship, followed by dismissal and rejection, resonated with me. Heavily. Loving and losing is one of the hardest and most transformative acts on a person. And I was now irrevocably changed. And it's kind of a huge part of my life. But being carelessly cast aside by someone you'd seen your future with can be devastating. And that's the reason why I still cry my hours out to this song. When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. Every hour we spent together lives within my heart And when she was sad, I was there to dry her tears And when she was happy, so was I When she No. 
And she smiled at me and held me just like she used to do. Like she loved me when she loved me. When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. Every hour we spent together lives within my heart. When she. It's a beautiful little sequence and a very beautiful song as well. I understand why some people would kind of snort at the heartstring tugging song with the old memory sequence sort of thing, but I I still love that that part of the movie. I feel it's a great, just kind of beautiful moment. It's a really touching moment. And if people are wanting a simp that to experience that moment without the song then they have Toy Story 3 for that. I've in the past been fairly critical of the James Taylor song in, in Cars. Uh, I'm going to kind of stick by that when we carry on with our Cars one, because ultimately when it comes down to it, the, the Cars story isn't as heartbreaking as Jesse's for me. Uh, but also, it, it, you know what? If Sarah McLaughlin had sung that uh, with her voice, I, I probably would have loved it and thought it was fantastic. I've just never really been a fan of James Taylor. I'll give you that. I, I, I sort of agree. I think they could have done, probably done the same, gotten a similar effect without the song in that as well. You know, again, they could have done that totally instrumentally. But I think they could. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, well. I still think this sequence would be fantastic if it was just instrumental, but uh, um, and even I think she got Oscar nominated. In fact, she may have even have won for I this one. I don't think she won. Oh, no, hang on. It was 99, wasn't it? So She lost to Bill, Bill Collins. Collins. You'll be in my heart. <laughs> that was the same year that Matt and Trey from South Park got nominated for Blame Canada. And uh, when Phil Collins won, they did an episode where Phil Collins disapproved of uh, Timmy being uh, exploited, when even though it was the band that he wanted to be in. And uh, in the end, he got mauled by a mob and had his Oscar shoved in. <laughs> this is a family show. Suffice it to say, it all worked out. Yeah. Stinky Pete. Yes. Yeah, that's where the Oscar went. Here we have yet another brilliant Pixar antagonist. Selfish, embittered, deceptive, and manipulative. Pete, possibly named after Pete, Doctor? Might be. Go find out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, at work. Spent, in his words, a lifetime in a dime store shelf watching every other toy get bought. Unlike Jesse, who was loved and abandoned, or Lotso, who was loved and replaced... Pete was never even loved, and seen instead as valuable property, eventually accepting it as his only lot in life and coercing the rest of the Roundup gang into accepting that being a museum piece prized for their historical significance was far safer and more rewarding a life choice than seeking the fleeting love of a child. The fact that he's never experienced both of these means he can't possibly make a true judgment, and that's the tragedy of Pete. But he doesn't lie to Woody. He's right that Andy is growing up. He's right that it's very unlikely that Woody will remain part of his life for long. And he's right that the dangers of spending an eternity rotting in some landfill are very real. But it falls to Woody to have to make the true choice. Had he gone along with Pete, then they would have very likely ended up residing in a Japanese toy museum for possibly hundreds of years. What Pete hasn't considered is how hollow that existence would end up being. 
As much of a limbo as the garbage tip, they would stay in their cabins down through the long years, watching children and grown-ups walk by with inquiring and, yes, occasionally adoring eyes, but always imprisoned behind glass and with only one another for company. But bland, featureless safety really is attempting offer of salvation for the disenfranchised and scared, when facing uncertainty or the prospect of impending destruction, to some, it might be the only sane choice. Woody chooses against unending safety out of the deference for the other toys he's bonded with so strongly, and for the boy he will never stop loving. Ultimately, it's his duty as a toy. And in the third and final film, we see the consequences of that choice. planet truck it turns up again in an unmissable capacity the toys actually drive it and uh, yeah i don't even know how that happens <laughs> I, I don't think they could even push down that hard on the accelerator i i, I can't drive a car i'm willing to accept the uh few uh, blocks they drive that we actually see but uh it's it's a little hard to believe that that to pull that off all the way to the airport it yeah. seemed like luck was holding and it. then all the way back in a tractor the, isn't that breaking these precious rules that uh that woody like adheres to incredibly de- to the point where he will put himself in danger by going limp and pretending to be a toy even when it would do him much better to just run so uh i don't know you got to kind of give him that one just it was late at night it was late at night yes yes you think somebody w- might have noticed on the highway though it, uh, the uh, the bit when the next morning when the neighbours uh, come out and the guy's just holding his coffee staring at this truck is an awesome little bit of uh, screen time. I mean, nobody nobody else driving that late at night, I guess, noticed. Uh, that tractor apparently yeah. driving itself. They wouldn't go, well, it's the toys who are driving it. They'd think it was a ghost. Or they'd think when they stopped that the driver had run off. I don't know. Or it was out of control. Yeah, they'd just consider it to be an out-of-control tractor driving itself and they'd think that the toys were mascots. Yeah, that's what happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're explaining away the irrationality here. It's not all right for the prequels, but it's all right for Pixar, it would appear. <laughs> yeah. The Luxo ball is also in Andy's room again. The music that plays in the elevator in Al's apartment complex is the theme from... A Bug's Life. It is indeed A Bug's Life. Barbie is voiced by whom? Jody Benson. Goes straight to the top of the Pixar class, yeah. Uh, and Jody Benson played... Ariel. Indeed. Um, you can't really tell unless you listen very, very carefully because she's putting on a really smiley voice. You're very but, bubbly. Yes. Um, but yeah, this is the one that Mattel said, yeah, you can have our Barbie for this one. It's not entirely 100% flattering either because the Barbies don't seem all that smart either. And and she's kind of a girly girl in the, in the next one. But then again, I suppose, yeah, she's she still appears brighter and more enterprising in the third one than I would ever have given Barbie credit for. She fools the bookworm. Emperor Zerg is voiced by... Oh, that's one of my favourite bits where the bookworm sees apparently Ken walking away in high-heeled shoes and goes, Ish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> More on Ken next week. Emperor Zerg is voiced by... 
Andrew Stanton. Very true. Pixar, uh, he's a writer for Pixar and a uh, storyboard scripter and director of Finding Nemo and Wally. Yep. Two of my absolute favourites. Me too. British listeners may recognise the male baggage handler's voice as that of... I didn't notice. Andy Peters. No. Children's BBC presenter and second fiddle to Ed the Duck. He, ma- he managed to get the line while interviewing John Lasseter about the making of Toy Story 2. However, they couldn't ship him to America to do the line because he would need a work permit. So he just recorded the line in the studio and they took that with him. Uh, and the Hot Wheels car that Jesse skates on is a miniature version of... Of Emily's car or Emily's family car? Yep, it's, it's Emily's. It's the red car that Emily leaves, uh, abandons her in. Nice so, touch. yeah, kind of. It's, it's, I suppose she's over Emily at that point. Yeah. Nice. Also, I, again, slightly inconsistent. Well, I don't know. If I was playing with toys that my mother hadn't got me, she'd ask, where'd you get those toys? But I assume Andy just thinks that uh, Jesse and Bullseye are from his mum as like little presents as, as welcome back. And his mum just assumes he got them at cowboy camp. Because where else would you get a cowboy doll? As long as we're pointing out inconsistencies, uh, my wife actually pointed out yesterday, um, uh, Jerry, the toy mas- master guy, after uh, finishing up with what he says, it's like, he's for display only. You handle him too much, he's not going to last. But what he seems to last pretty well for the next ten years. But also, think about it, uh, Andy probably didn't do much with him after, he's, he's like eight or nine and around about 12, he'd probably have stopped playing with Woody and company. So that's a good five, six years in the toy box. Oh, and I take it back, actually, I guess his arm did come torn apart again very soon after that, and Andy fixed him up himself, so yeah. maybe that explains it. That, that was kind of a, a nice little touch to say, look, you know, they, they, would it, it was kind of a reassuring pat to say, look, things may be a bit rocky, but, uh, you know, Andy's now taking responsibility for his toys. He's not going to chuck Woody away straight away with that. And he must have actually taken his arm back off, taken out some of the puffy inside stuff and then st- just sewed it back on again because Woody is not super muscular on that arm for the next third one. Oh, of course, the uh, the bit where Potato Head saves the uh, three aliens from and they're eternally grateful pays off big time for the third one. Oh, yeah. And Lots it, of great payoffs yeah. in the third film. Oh. Toy Story 2 very nearly disappeared off the face of the planet. Uh, I'm actually going to go to an extra from the Blu-ray recently, which just blew me away at how fragile a movie can be. Uh, take a listen into this. When making a film like Toy Story 2, we use a bunch of Linux and Unix machines. On those kinds of machines, there's a command, RM star, that removes everything on the file system as fast as it can. Have you ever accidentally dropped something out of your pocket while the toilet is flushing? That's RM star. Somebody had run RM Star on the drive where all of the Toy Story 2 files were kept, and things just started to disappear. Woody's hat disappeared, and then his boots disappeared, and then as we kept checking, he disappeared entirely. Woody's gone. Seconds later, looking up, the rest of the characters on the show, Buzz, Potato Head, Ham, and Rex, had all vanished, and soon after that, whole sequences, the toy barn and Andy's room were disappearing off the disk drive. Right in front of our eyes. If you had 20 or 30 people working for a solid year, you could recreate all of that work erased in probably about 20 seconds. So I grabbed the phone. Transfer me to systems! Ah! So they uh, transferred me to the, uh, the systems group. And I said, unplug the machine. Just pull it out of the wall. Pull it out. But we can't pull it out of the wall because it... Pull it out of the wall. Pull it out. Plug the machine back in. Take a look at it. Wow. A lot of the film's gone. Back most of it. That's a nightmare. 
What happened next was uh, the woman who was talking there went home to a spare copy that she had kept on her computer so that she could check it at home. The only version in existence at that time on planet Earth of Toy Story and bought her whole computer in to Pixar very carefully and gently in the car and put it back on the system. That is the stuff of nightmares. That. Trump, so, Trump yeah, remember production. that one. R.M. Star. Why doesn't it say, do you want to erase everything you've just done for the past year? Yes slash no. After you press that. Why would that exist? Are you sure? Yes slash no. Why would really? That, are you absolutely sure like about that? Yes slash no. Digit code. Make sure that both captains are as present to enter this and switch the keys at the same time. That's why would that exist? Uh, it's suicide. It's crazy. Oh, that's horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so just pray that never happens anywhere. I mean, I'm assuming they make backups now. Uh, I hope so. I'm not going to (laughs) try. I just don't want to be in the person who put in the wrong key command. Yeah. God. (laughs) I think they sent him to the moon. That's his new place to work. (laughs) This film was very unusual for many reasons. It was the first theatrically screened Disney sequel. It was also the only absolutely excellent Disney sequel that stood up to, and some have said, bettered the original. I myself spent ten years fighting that battle. I love how they go deep on this one. They add so much texture to the original's premise with this notion of uncertainty and finite happiness. It brings it up to being even more so a film about human nature and facing our fears. And now that's not in any way to disparage the original Toy Story. I think both of them are works of absolute genius. And probably Toy Story... Well, no, definitely Toy Story 1 works better on its own. But as a, a companion piece, uh, it's I suppose it's like Aliens and Alien. Again, you know, that you can't really have one without the other. I think a lot of people have said that the uh, the second one is now weaker, especially in, in the face of Toy Story 3 or even. It's, it's kind of irrelevant. It's certainly not a perfect trilogy. There's definitely precedent to actually state that. But uh, to me, I absolutely love all three Toy Story films so closely for different reasons. Absolutely. I, I will agree. I have, I'm still torn as to which I feel is superior between Toy Story 1 and 2. I'd it's probably, a pointless argument. It's like trying to decide between kids. Why would you ever have to do that? It's true. It's true. Like, you really don't need to. They are all... It's like dis- dis- debating your favorite Pixar movies. They are all still good at the end of the day. Yeah. But, uh, good? I feel Toy- good? Toy Story- okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I feel like Toy Story 1 may be stronger as a, as a film, but um, there's something about Woody's arc in Toy Story 2 and uh, his decision between just kind of the uh, his loyalty to Andy and uh, to his, uh, the other toys that he takes care of versus being able to uh, throw that away for a secure and known future. Mm, a safe and, and certain one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a safe and certain future and, and having to make that decision and getting to see. And I think it's just Woody's entire character arc throughout this, uh, his his story throughout this film is extremely interesting to me and more powerful, I think, than anything, than any single element of the original Toy Story film. It's like a hair's breadth between them because Buzz's heartbreak in the first one is so poignant as well. So it's, it's, it's tough. And then just the freshness of the first one. It's, it's fantastic. And now that I've, uh, I've heard about how incredibly fraught the production was when you watch it, when you think back on it, there are somewhat patchy moments at times, kind of, and it's a little bit inconsistent at times. And you wonder which bits were from the first draft and which bits were from the second draft. And, and it, it does hold together very, very well. And you have to be looking for the cracks. And sometimes the humor's a little bit off, like Buzz runs around with a sticker on his butt that says, but or butte. 
<laughs> and, you know, there's occasional, let's call it DreamWorks humor, shall we? Uh, but uh, it's so fleeting and it, it's so, it's sewn together with, with all of this incredible Pixar skill and love. And I, I love it all the more for what it represents of, of this statement from Pixar saying, no, we will not put out something that's not absolutely A1. And you just have to respect that. Gentlemen, please plug your shows. All right, you can find me over at GameBurst at GameBurst.co.uk, where we take, uh, well, we have a 30-minute news show on Sunday, and we have a 30-minute roundtable discussion on a Thursday, as well as a monthly quiz and a monthly replay show as well. And you can find me over at The Escapist with a higher-pitched voice every Thursday talking about video games. <laughs> By the way, I'd like to say they're flipping awesome because I spent all afternoon watching them. Oh, thank you. I was only going to watch one, and then yes, I like, everything that was on there. They're like okay. pistachio nuts. It also caused me to do a bit of a spit take, because I got to one that has an interesting, you know, sort of thumbnail. Oh, it's two British guys. For the sake, let's have these guys voiced by Brits. Didn't see that one coming out. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Dan, for that one. I still love that bit. So, yeah, go see Dan's videos, some of them starring Digital Cowboys. <laughs> I would. They are really, um, really well put together. And if you are interested in video game aspects at all, go see them, because you guys really put together a good show. Yeah. Thank you. We Absolutely. try. And the music at the end of the film is a jazzy Vegas rendition of You've Got a Friend in Me, sung by Robert Goulet, who you may remember he was the villain in um, Naked Gun 2 and a half. He's been in various other things, and he was you know, a huge Vegas career, and he's an, he's, his classification is entertainer. Uh, like Joe Raft and Jim Varney, he sadly died a short time afterwards, making Wheezy a sad little penguin without a speaking or singing voice. But Goulet does it so well that here it is for you once again. Take it away, Wheezy. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead And you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed You just remember what your old pal said Son, you've got a friend in me Yeah, you've got a friend in me You've got a friend in me You've got a friend in me you got troubles, then I got them too There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you We stick together, we can see it through Cause you've got a friend in me Yeah, you've got a friend in me Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am Bigger and stronger too, maybe But none of them will ever love you the way I do just with me and you, babe And as the years go by Our friendship will never die You're gonna see it's our destiny You've got a friend in me We will see you next week for Toy Story 3 And we're gonna use a different sign-off this week Because last week's was lame So, uh, good night and do you wanna do it together? What your old pal said Son, you've got a friend to infinity, infinity. and beyond.
we stick together, we can see it through. Cause you've got a friend in me. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am. Bigger and stronger too. Maybe. But none of them will ever love you the way I do. Just me and you, babe. And as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're gonna see it's our destiny. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. 